So, uh, once again today, I have the pleasure to talk to Peter Bantz, also known as Bapinder Singh Bantz. Um, he's a Sikh historian, author, art collector, and Maharaj Dalip Singh archivist. Um, last time we spoke, it was actually about Maharaj Dalip Singh Ji and his kind of extended family um, and kind of what happened to them. So if you haven't listened to that, I would kind of suggest you all to go and listen to that. Um, and although there is a connection between that topic and what we're going to discuss today, um, I guess it's slightly a tentative link, um, because today what we're going to discuss is basically Sikh migration to Britain, um, kind of starting, I guess, with the early 20th century and then working forward. Um, so before kind of we get into the swing of things, I just obviously want to say thank you for making uh, the time to, to, to have this conversation. Thank you, Amir. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to do this second uh, podcast with you. Really enjoyed doing uh, the first one, and it's, uh, now it's online as well, so I've actually heard it. So it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here with you and uh, discuss um, Sikhs in Britain. So obviously your book then is also called Sikhs in Britain. Now, I did highlight earlier that there's kind of a link between Manas Dalip Singh Ji and, and, and kind of Sikh migration to this country. Now, kind of why did you go from kind of archiving Manas Dalip Singh Ji and history related to him to then looking at migration to England? Well, if I'm actually honest, it was actually the publishers which actually contacted me when I did my first book on Manas Dalip Singh by the History Press. They, um, on, on, on the strength of that book, because it, saw, it, it did really well, there wasn't many um, sort of Sikh or Punjab books published in the UK at that time. Um, we had Warrior Saints by uh, Amadeep Madra and Paramjit Singh. And um, obviously the other book on a Sikh subject, which was by a, 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 an, an Irish writer, Christy Campbell, was the Maharajas Box. And the book did really well. And the History Press were actually doing a series of books of different religions coming to Britain. So they contacted me and said, look, we'd like to do a book on uh, the Sikh history, the Sikh migration to Britain. And would that be something which would interest you? And I said, yeah, it, it would be great because I knew I had a, a, I had the advantage of knowing about the Leipzig and the Leipzig family who were an early family uh, from, the, from the Punjab. But also, as we mentioned in my, uh, our first podcast, my own family came in the 1930s. Uh, and through that, I had various links with other early Sikh migrant families. So it would, I would, I would be at an advantage to, to write about uh, this subject because I could, um, through family networking and through through the elders in the community, I, I could track down um, the, the the early families and, and and get their stories. No, no. Well, it, it sounds like you kind of had a head start or at least had connections to the people who could kind of provide you with information. Now, I just wanted to ask then, obviously in the book, you kind of, you, you start with Myers the Leap Singh Ji and then kind of focus on the early 20th century. When are the, when is the first kind of instance or instances of Sikh migration from India? Because obviously I'm, I'm assuming people came before the 20th century, although perhaps not in kind of any substantial quantities. Yes, yeah, so after Maharaj Dalip Singh came in 1854, although by that time he was Christian, but obviously he came from a Sikh background and he came from Punjab, there were various other uh, Punjabi or Sikh royalty coming to Britain, or visits to, to Queen Victoria or, or even on, on vacations. And then we had sort of affluent families from Punjab who would send their, their children um, to study here at, at universities uh, and also uh, members of the Indian civil servant, servant service who would come to Britain to um, get training um, and, uh, and also work here. So this was all up to the late 19th century. But at the same time, there was also uh, a military presence which, which, which came and went um, to Britain throughout sort of the late 18, uh, 80s, uh, right up to the war. So we had, um, in 1887, we had Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, um, and where uh, soldiers from all over the empire came, and uh, a huge number of six soldiers came amongst them. And then 1897, we had the Diamond Jubilee, um, and then 1902, we had the the, uh, the coronation of uh, King Edward VII, and vice versa, we had uh, the coronation of George V in 1911, where a whole uh, array of Indian and, and uh, Sikh soldiers came uh, to make the royal procession more vibrant and affluent, and actually to show off the, the, the power of the empire. And then obviously we had the First World War, where there, 
the really big numbers of Sikh soldiers um, came uh, to England, especially to the south of England, which um, we'll probably touch on when we talk about the, the world wars. No, definitely. So would it be then fair to say that Sikh migration prior to kind of the 1920s or the early 20th century is mainly influenced by kind of the arms of the British Raj in terms of kind of if they're coming over here for the Indian civil service or they're being sent over here for education. I'm assuming those who can afford to send their children to England for education are the elites or those who are in established positions. And again, the Indian civil service is obviously fulfilling the, the role of kind of um, filling the bureaucracy of the British Raj. And then would it be fair to say that post kind of the First World War, it's, it, although those things are still there, would it be fair to say that the, the, the kind of the nature of migration changed in terms of now it was actually people moving uh, to settle in order to find jobs? Kind of were the reasons then changing after the First World War? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, from the evidence I have, from the research I did, the, the migrants which came in the 19th century and the, and the turn of the century um, were not settlers. So they just came here to fulfill a task, either it's a holiday or a vacation to study, or um, to get training, etc. So the, these um, early six had no intention of, of settling. Uh, there were some very, very um, small uh, exceptions, which I found were with some of the soldiers, um, especially a couple of Muslim, Muslim soldiers, but not Muslim soldiers, which families uh, who I contacted, where they'd come to um, these um, the coronations or the, the jubilees. And where they stayed here, they fell in love with a, a local woman. And then they ended up saying that she went back and then they came back and was decided to stay here. And I found two or three of these um, early uh, settlers were descendants of, of these um, of these soldiers. So it was, a, it, was, it was a very small amount. So the, the, the first sort of migrants, I would say, who, who started settling were, were after the First World War. Okay. Okay, no, that's fair. Well, that's actually the first phase within your book, which you uh, kind of demarcate in terms of migration. Now, one thing that I found when looking or kind of on a previous podcast, I was discussing with uh, Sean Kaur from, I can't remember what university it is now in Canada. And we were discussing um, seat migration to Canada. And a lot of the research that I did kind of make, again like i didn't do anything substantial but the the preliminary research i did kind of indicated that a lot of the early Sikh settlers to canada were kind of relatively affluent families normally from a jata background kind of landowning background knew how to farm and so kind of obviously had transferable skills um equally when i've looked at migration of my family going from india to to kenya a lot of the time it was because they were good with carpentry or or, or um or metal work and so they were employed to work on the railways so equally when you're when you were doing your research and, and i guess not just in this first phase but kind of throughout how did class and caste influence migration and did this change because i also noticed in uh kind of the the the, the period that comes after which is just after the second world war and after independence it's very much to fill a labor shortage which i assume would have been people coming from a very different class background as to those who were perhaps coming between the world wars, businessmen, etc. So the, the communities which we had in, in the 30s, obviously, if you're comparing it to Canada and America, or especially Canada, it's very different because there was no farming, there was no Sikhs, which I, I didn't find any Sikh, uh, Sikhs coming to Britain to do farming at that time. Uh, so the communities which we had around the 1920s, because there was a, a very small number, you know, we're talking sort of the lower thousands, even sort of between 800 to maybe 2,000 uh, people who had, who had settled at that time. And there were people from uh, obviously affluent families from Jat backgrounds. Um, uh, there were a few Potohari uh, families or Potohari men. So there's predominantly men, there's very few women uh, that came uh, in these interwar years. Um, and there was a um, a, a large chunk of this community was also the the Sikh community, you know, the the Partra Sikhs, um, who basically took up the the peddling trade. Now, the peddling trade, um, some of you may know, or for those who don't don't know, it was basically going door to door and selling from a, a suitcase, a briefcase, um, 
items of clothing, haberdashery. Uh, this could be from silk ties to dishcloths, anything basically you could fill uh, in your suitcase. And so they would take it from the, from the cities, predominantly from the east end of London, and they would travel to the rural areas, uh, to the dock areas, to the countryside where people did not have links to, to stores and shops and, and, and sell their wares. Now, this became a very profitable trade for, for, the, for the peddlers. And obviously through family networking, they were telling their relatives and, and their, their cousins and their brothers back home, now come, come to London and come to the UK uh, because this was, was making them a lot of money. So there was no intention of actually at that point to settle. So this was strictly coming for work. Um, and because it was so profitable, I, I actually found that other communities, even uh, the early Hindu Punjabi communities, even the, the Muslim community, especially from, from Northern India, were also taking up uh, the peddling trade. Um, we also found Udham Singh, Shahid Udham Singh, who came to, to England, he, he stayed with peddlers and there is evidence that he also did uh, peddling for, for, a, for a time. So the, the the earlier community, especially the, the male community, was the 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 Bart, uh, Sikh community, but um, there was also a very affluent, um, educated uh, class uh, coming here as well from, from the Jat uh, background as well. Um, and one of one of the early families which we which many of us know is uh, Lord Singh, Lord Indrajit Singh of Wimbledon, whose family I believe came in 1931 or 32. And, uh, and his mum came and um, I think his elder two brothers uh, came here and the younger two were, were, were born here. So there was a very small community growing, but it was a predominantly male, um, male um, popular, Sikh population at that time in, in Britain. Well, I just wanted to ask you quickly with, in, in relation to the peddling. Um, it was mentioned that a lot of the early kind of some of the early Sikh peddlers had really strong ties and relations with the Jewish community in terms of getting their feet into the peddling kind of industry. How, like, what did your research show about that? Like, how did that kind of actually pan out in the real life, in the real world? And kind of how did the two communities kind of work with one another? So when the, when the Sikhs were, were coming in, in those early sort of 1920s, 1930s, um, even up to the early 50s, there was a lot of prejudice. People did not want to give lodgings to, to Indians um, and to six, it was even worse because obviously we had other stars and we were quite visible uh, where other communities would could, you know, could be clean shaven and, and they could sort of, sort of mix in uh, easier. And the Jewish community actually opened their doors to, to, to the Sikh community. And at that time, the East End, which used to be known as the, the Jewish East End, um, they they formed a large um, uh, part of the, the population of the East End of London, and not only did they have lodgings, but they also had a lot of businesses. So they were also in the rag trade, which is which was sort of what we were talking about, what the Sikhs were selling. So they owned sort of a lot of the, um, the sort of the clothing industry was in their hands in the East End at that at that time. So very cleverly, what they would do, they would give lodgings to the Sikhs, and then. So they would have lodging above their factories or above their shops and stores. And they would say to them, well, you can stay here. This is the rent you pay. And also we'll give you our wares and you can go and sell these for us and we'll give it, give it to you on credit. So obviously Jewish people were very clever businessmen. They, 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 they gave the, the items um, on, on credit. And then the six who were dressed, I mean, these sadars were dressed very smartly. Their, their, their suit and ties and their overcoats. Um, and uh, they would go knocking on doors all over the country, and they actually got. They actually started working a system out whereby, if they were if if they were in um, say say they were going to the Norfolk countryside, um, and they found well we've got a whole you know a, a good clientele base here, they would be sending telegrams to their suppliers saying you know send us more so we don't have to don't even have to come back to London just send us the stuff out here. So they would go out go, go to these houses in the in the countryside try to sell their wares and say to the person well we're going to be coming down next month or next week is there anything else you want from london we can bring that for you you can give us your your shopping list your, your shopping order so it's a it's a more primitive it, it was a well you can say it's like delivery wasn't it so <laughs> they were or amazon so they were actually delivering to the door so they were taking orders and they were coming back the following weeks they were building up clientele so they were the regular customers um, or ordering regular 
uh, regularly from them. No, no, that's very, that's really interesting. Um, so with the third phase, which you've kind of said it's chain migration and it all kind of occurs before there is a legislation change. Now, what is this legislation and how does it impact migration in, in, in this case anyway? Okay, so in, in 1962, we had the, the first Immigration Act, uh, which basically gave the, the rights for those who held British passports. So these were um, Indians which lived in, in Africa, i.e. in Kenya and Tanzania, etc., and in India, who had a British passport, uh, the right to enter Britain. But by 1968, um, the, a significant uh, proportion of the Kenyan Indians who were, who were, who were, who were Sikhs um, were restricted um, with the 1968 Immigration Act. Uh, so it basically barred them from automatic entry uh, into Britain. So from that act, it, um, just coming up to that act, up to 1968, uh, we had a huge influx of, um, of, of Indians. Um, and this included obviously uh, Sikhs, um, a, a big Gujarati community as well, um, and a, a Punjabi Muslim uh, community as well, to um, sort of come, come to England in, 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 in huge numbers. Throughout then the research that you did on Sikh migration into England, is this is that the only instance of kind of Commonwealth legislation impacting uh, Sikh migration, or does it occur in other places? Well, there was also Singapore and Malaysia. So when when these countries uh, gained independence, we again saw influx of of, of Indians, um, and which had a huge um, a number of Sikhs uh, residing there, uh, again coming to England. So this obviously impacted. Um, the, uh, the Sikh population, and it went up uh, in, in, in quite in quite quite a number. Interesting. Why do you think then there's been such a so for argument's sake, when looking at or, or discussing migration to say Canada or America, a lot of the draw for Sikh settlers or early Sikh settlers and and people that kind of followed was the fact that there was land and that they could farm it, and there was these kind of transferable skills which just seemed to work. Um, and in some instances, I guess it, it, it's a bit different because they their intention was to settle, to till the land and to kind of set up base there. Now, why did it, like, what was it about England then, considering it didn't have any, like, as we've already discussed, it didn't really have any farmland, it didn't have that uh, pull in the same way. What was it then that attracted the first Sikh settlers? Obviously before there's this labor shortage and there's actually a demand for just labor. What is it in particular that attracts pre people to Britain? Um, is it social advancement because, I don't know, they know English and they can kind of somehow use that to, to work their way through? Or is it, as you said, just to come to earn money, send the money back and then go home and actually they just get caught up and they're like, actually, life is different here or better or whatever the words are. Like, what is that kind of, what did you find in your research, I guess, is, is, is the way to ask it. Yeah, so obviously in my research, I found that the, the Sikhs which came in in the 30s, sort of the pre-war years, and even in the, in the 50s, uh, to fill the, the labour shortages after the war, obviously, because Britain was heavily bombed, etc., and had to be rebuilt, and obviously had to get its, um, there was shortage of men as well, because they'd lost a lot of men during the, in the wars. And these, um, these men came from all over the colonies, um, including India um, and, and Punjab, um, uh, there was a significant number from the Punjab. And I found from my research that many of those of these men that came, came just to work and their intention was to, to come, to make money, send the money back, uh, and then perhaps return after a few years or a couple of years. Um, but then as work went on, money was coming and they were sending money back and they were building their homes back in Punjab. The sort of the intention to go home um, that, uh, and the dream to stay here just grew. So there was like less and less, it, was, it became less unlikely that they were going to return. And then what we had in the late 50s, early 60s, they start calling over their, 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 their wives uh, and, their, and their children. And from that point, obviously, you know that the families are going to settle there. Uh, so the intention, even it, my own relatives and, 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 and my own family, I found that there was not the initial um, intention to, to reside in Britain. Um, it was very easy to work here because obviously the, they were invited, many of them were invited, many of them held British Indian passports, so it was easier to come to Britain. Um, and obviously the income that you would earn here, because we've got to remember when these men were coming 
um, in, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, they weren't living in lash, uh, lavish houses and, uh, <laughs> and apartments. They were living in lodging rooms. And then, you know, basically you would have like, you know, maybe six to 10 guys living in one room and basically mattresses would be on the floor. And, you know, I, I when I did my research, I, I found that even the mattresses, they would they had shifts on these mattresses. So, you know, one guy would be sleeping in the, in, in the morning um, and going to work at night. And that guy would return at night and then he would take over that bed, you know, and that mattress and and, and so forth. There, were, there was one story where um, a chap I spoke to in uh, in Southall and um, he'd bought these boots, which were no heavy, heavy wearing boots, which basically guaranteed that they would last you know, X or five years. Uh, but because three people were using these boots and three different shifts, 24 hours, they literally wore out in, in, in a year. And and and, they, and when he took it back to the shop, they were like, well, you couldn't have done that in, in, in a year. So it just shows you, you know, that they were making use of the, of, of the resources. Um, and at the same time, remember, they were working hard and, and they played hard. I mean, I, I circumstances where I would hear from these chaps, they would be working shift work and even the peddlers would be working continuously and then they would take three four days out um, and then they would go to the local um, uh, markets and get all the, the fresh meat or poultry and stuff and, and their bottles of drink and then they would just have a constant sort of you can say a bender for three days where they would be just drinking and eating and just you know and, and just sort of letting go and just giving all giving it the sort of releasing all the tension from 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 all those um, shifts they were doing so there were some pleasant stories a, a lot of hardships um, but at the same time, um, you're going to think they were saving a, 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 no, a hell of a lot of money because their outgoing, uh, there, wasn't, there was no outgoing. It was basically you know, all, all shared amongst uh, the peddlers or, or the laborers who were sharing a lodging. So would it also be fair to say that at the same time that, so for argument's sake, um, during the kind of the second post-Second World War era, post-independence era, when you've got this demand for labour, is there also two ways in the fact that Punjab is limited in its kind of job opportunities? Because surely for such numbers to be migrating over to England, like, I, I'm assuming that there's some type of lack in Punjab because otherwise you just wouldn't see perhaps such huge numbers. Or is it just the fact that they're like, well, it's just easier over there, as in I can make more money over there? Well, I think partition played a great part. Um, Punjab, Punjab obviously was hit the greatest. It was partitioned into with sort of 60% going into at that time, um, West Pakistan and the rest going into India. And so, all the Sikhs that had lost their homelands on, on the west side, uh, having to travel into East and having to basically restart their lives. And funny enough, I don't know if it's by coincidence, but most of the the early settlers who were here in the 20s and 30s and 40s, especially the the, the, the chaps who were doing the peddling, all came from West Punjab, from, from Sialkot, from Rawalpindi, from Lahore. So they, these guys were sort of the hardest hit. And where they had the links to Britain, because they worked here before independence, it was easier for them to migrate. Uh, and then obviously family ties and then family connections, one, one would go, and then he would call his other uh, fellow villager. And so we would look at sort of everybody calling their own printer, but they would come there. So you would find a whole shifts of men from one village uh, transporting themselves into, into towns in, in, into Britain. Um, and they were, um, and as, as we will sort of uh, discuss later, um, this also affected Gurdwaras when they were established because you've got sort of the um, the origins of, of the Sikhs, where they came from. That uh, vastly um, explained to us why certain Gurdwaras were built in certain areas. No, no definitely. No, I guess it, it just kind of connecting on from that then, how did like waves of migration and kind of the establishment of Gurdwara's work hand in hand because obviously I, the, the first one is the Gurdwara in London, the Khalsa Jatha Gurdwara, if I'm not correct. That's right. So the Khalsa Jatha Pratishas were set up by students um, at Cambridge University. Uh, Santeja Singh uh, was, um, had, had, a, had a great hand um, in establishing this committee. Um, there were also other uh, very well-known Sikhs like Haddad Singh Malik, uh, Teja Singh Malik, 
uh, Ditsing Malik being one of the first Sikh pilots who fought um, in, the, in the First World War. And so this uh, Jatha would basically meet up every week. They were, as I said, a large part of this uh, group was, was students. So they would hold a, a Kirtan Darbar in, in one of the lodgings um, every week. And then uh, in 1908, they um, established a, a place in London. Um, in 1911, the Maharaja of Patiala, Babinda Singh, visited uh, Britain on the um, coronation of King George. And the, a, a small group of Sikhs from the Castle Jatta British Isles went to see the Maharaja and told him that now we would like to establish a, a place of worship. And um, he obtained for them uh, a lease on a building at 79 uh, Sinclair Road. Um, it's, it's always called, well, we've always called it the Shepherd's Bush Gurdwara, but it's, um, it, it was called the, the Maharaja Kapindar Singh Taramsala, uh, which shifted to the, the present site. Uh, I believe in 19, uh, God, I think in 1971, I think. So they, although it, it, it was a Gurdwara, it was never classed as a Gurdwara. It was never registered uh, as a Gurdwara until many years later. So it was always known as a Taramsala. And I found that the first Gurdwara, which was a registered uh, Gurdwara, was in Manchester, in Monton Street, uh, in 1953. So that was one of the first ones. So I also found actually in my in my research that the um, the first Gurdwara in many of the major cities, i.e. Um, Bristol, Cardiff, Southampton, Manchester, uh, Edinburgh, Glasgow, um, God. Ipswich, Peterborough. I, I found that the the first gurdwara established in these cities were by the the Sikh community, uh, because obviously they were the the, the early uh, so made up a, a large part of the early uh, migrant group. And obviously, as more and more migrants came from the early fifties and, and and sixties, and populations grew, then we found uh, divisions not only amongst castes. So we had the uh, so obviously we had a, a lot of Ramgadia, a Sikh community, come during the, the 60s um, and obviously in the 70s um, after, the, indep after um, the independence of many of the, uh, the countries there. And following on from that, then we had division of sort of the place of origin. So where the Sikhs came from, for example, Afghanistan, did it, the Sikhs that came from uh, Kabul um, and Afghanistan uh, made their own Gurdwaras because, that's, because that was their origin um, of, of, of migration. So there were these divisions uh, which were um, made uh, from the pattern of uh, immigration. Uh, would it also be then fair to say that a lot of um, kind of the modern day demographics of where Sikhs are based also kind of indicate where um, kind of the main concentrations of Sikh migration took place? Like, as in, I'm assuming like places like the Southall and Hounslow attract it or have such a big community at the moment because their ancestry at some point like there was a demand for labor and the factories were, were, were there similarly in Birmingham um there's a large seed community and again like an or, or Wolverhampton there's a large seed community and again a lot of that was um influenced by the 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 kind of the request for labor or, or a labor shortage in this country or has there been kind of more internal kind of movement within the Sikh community and, and, and perhaps it's not as reflective. So what we find, um, what I find in my research was that the, the very early communities, um, no matter where they landed, uh, because they obviously came by ship, um, they headed to London. So this was sort of the 1920s and 30s. So the, the east end of London was sort of the, the hub. Um, there was a place called, uh, still there, the Artillery Passage, uh, where many of the if, if you if you find sort of the early Sikh families, they all have some sort of origin. Um, some so they'll say that now that's we're connected to that part because many of the Sikhs stayed there. Even all them Singh um, stayed in, in the lodgings at um, Artillery Passage. So these were obviously all Jewish line shops, which um, many Punjabis took over by the fifties, um, and a lot of the lodgings were, uh, uh, were were Punjabis. But what we find is then we have the sort of the late forties, the fifty, early fifties. Arrivals, which again came by ships, and that was by port. So where we see ships coming from India to Southampton, to Gravesend, um, to um, 
Liverpool, Manchester. Um, so all the port areas you will find had very early communities. So even in in in, in Bristol, Cardiff, so all these all these cities which have got have got ports, uh, um, historical ports, uh, especially with uh, with um, ships arriving from India, they were the the early settlements. And then obviously the communities which came in the in the sixties, obviously now coming by by aeroplane, obviously Southall being near Heathrow, so people landing in, in uh, at Heathrow. Um, setting you know uh, nearby in South and then obviously with one or two families come um, and they're obviously working around that area there was a lot of obviously six working at the airport as well at that time um, so they would call their 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 loved ones or their their relatives their their the cousins also to come around uh, sort of the airport area so if you look at South or Hayes uh, Hounslow this is all around sort of Heathrow Airport um, and, and, and again, in in, uh, in in Birmingham as well, where a lot of the six um, settled. So that was quite a late community. Most of the community which came in Birmingham was sort of a, a, a 50s, a post-50s community. And, and then from there, people moved. Once they settled, they looked around for work and then they saw opportunities elsewhere. For example, Lancashire, where there was the, the textile mills. Um, there was a lot of... Um, uh, shift work available uh, because uh, Indians were working more than one shift. They needed to to make the money. So places like Lancashire, uh, Preston, and Bradford, uh, up to Liverpool, all all, all, all this um, uh, north uh, western uh, side of England, uh, we had a, a huge amount of labourers heading to that part uh, to fill the uh, not only the labour shortages but to take advantage of the the shift work that was available to them. So just during your research then, um, obviously you would have had to speak to so many people um, who kind of either directly migrated themselves or, or, or were kind of descended from forefathers, grandfathers, etc. that had made the move. Now, what were some of like the common experiences that early Sikh migrants faced? Like, I can only talk on behalf of the stories that I've heard from people like my dad and, and his brothers who again, were part of the people who migrated to, to the UK from Kenya um, in the early 70s. Um, and again, it was just basically via racial abuse. Um, they lived up north near Newcastle in a place called Stockton-upon-Tees. Um, again, my grandma tells me loads and loads of stories, but she also equally balances that out with a lot of the stories of kind of um, community harmony. So she talks about how kind of she would have gone and worked a shift in the factory with say a Hindu Gujarati woman, a Muslim Punjabi woman, her loads of other women from all sorts of different kind of ethnic backgrounds, they'd do their shift and then they'd all kind of go to one person's house and kind of eat or cook or whatever, or, or do the kind of their social thing. Um, but what were kind of some of the common experiences that the people you spoke to kind of shared with you? So there wasn't a pattern, there was, obviously there was a, a lot of race, racism, a lot of prejudice, um, still is, um, but equally there were stories where people were welcoming as well, um, and it varied city to city. Um, but what I did find is that the, the migrants which came very early, i.e. pre-war, didn't, surprisingly, didn't face as much prejudice or racism um, as the later ones did. Uh, maybe it was because they were such a, a minute number um, where the locals did not find them a threat. And I think when, when the numbers were getting huge and when we had thousands sort of turning up and flying in um, when the Migration Acts come in, and that's when we find there were more race riots and uh, more protests because it was just the sheer influx of, uh, of Asians and Indians arriving um, in a very short, uh, sh short time. Um, I mean, my own father and I went to uh, school in the 50s here. Um, and um, he actually didn't find, I mean, as a, some, as a child wearing of the star, he actually didn't find in, in the 50s um, that much racism, which he found much later in life, maybe in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, so he, he found that they have, all they had their group, group of friends. Oh, there were circumstances where you do get the one odd, yeah, you will get that. But as in, if you talk to him about experiences then as in the 50s, um, and in the 80s, 90s, uh, sorry, 70s and 80s, definitely more as the, as the population um, increased. 
And he found that, um, and even sort of the older uncles I spoke to, and, and they said like, well, when we came in, in during just, or pre-war or after the war, they were, the, the locals were quite welcoming. They, they were opening their arms and they're like, you know, do you need anything? Uh, you know, can, can we help to make you feel more at home? Um, you know, my, my, even my dad was saying to me, we, we, we walk down a, 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 a street and, you know, if a police car walks by, he would, you know, basically stop and say, um, you know, where, where do you live? Or are you lost? Or are you okay, etc. Um, and I remember my dad telling me that you now they were purposely when they used to go out and with, with their friends and and um, he would flag down a police car because he because he never had the um, the fear to get back home and he would say to him I'm lost <laughs> and then the the, 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 the policeman uh, uh, took um, took him home and uh, the second time it happened and uh, the policeman says oh I know you you live on Sunset Street and you tried that with me before <laughs> so, so it just it shows you um, they were, you know there were there were two sides they were both a lot of racism but there was also those locals uh, and British people that did make them feel welcome as well. You, you had mentioned earlier that um, the, the peddling trade although kind of um, instrumental to the first wave of Sikh migrants that came to this country you said it kind of continued throughout. Um, I just wanted to get a flavour then of, of like how long or like how pivotal was the peddling trade to seat migration kind of throughout this 20th century um i know you you spoke briefly about how shahid Udham singh when he came to this country also um was a peddler and i also find it quite interesting because a lot of my own family when they first came to this country although it was later on obviously in the 70s um they first kind of the, the way they first kind of made money was in the markets similar kind of set up obviously but you're not having to go to everyone's house um and so it's just interesting how kind of that seems to be something that that, that crops up again and again but um yeah like as in what like was peddling trade just a consistent part of kind of seek settlers because of the fact it was uh kind of an industry within which they could enter or or, or was there something else that kind of well it was an industry them? where they didn't need any experience or any sort of qualification um you did not need any any funds i mean a lot of the jewish businesses were actually giving credit they were and especially if you your uncle will take you to a peddling supplier and it says my nephew he wants to go into trade and they'll because they know your uncle they will will trust you and say here's a uh, fill up your suitcase and obviously and then and, and off, off you go so it was something very easily done um there was no um there was no expense as in like there was no upfront expense uh, costs uh, in establishing this and um, all you need to do is speak sort of the main words in English i.e hello how are you thank you please that, those sort of words and and and, and you could be selling out of a, a, a suitcase um, and they had some terrific networks I, I remember speaking to this one uh, chap uh, about 20 years ago and he was basically going to school in the 50s here and his father would actually take him out of school a couple of days out of the week and say, come on, you've got to come peddling with me. And, he's, and he, he told me, he said, I actually hated it. I actually found it embarrassing because obviously he was going to school here. He was from, from, from he, was, he was born here and he's, you know, his dad was dragging him out into these villages in, in the countryside. And um, so he goes, one particular episode he told me, he was, um, he went with his father in, in his little van and stocked up. And he goes, we passed this huge, sort of mansion of like a, a stately home and uh, my father said to me right you get off here and you head to that house and I'm going to go into the village and see what I can do in the village and I was actually puzzled and I said to him well why did your father who you know you as a youngster inexperienced he's given you this big huge house and he's gone to the village to do the local villages himself he said well it was simple because if I messed up I'd already messed up one customer right and my father knew that if he goes to the village he's got a whole array of customers to make up so it's not going to be all lost so i've only got one to deal with so he said that my father drops me off and i go into the grounds and um i thought no way am i going to go and knock on this house because you know it's just absolutely embarrassing you know to go and knock on it and try to sell something out of suitcase so he hid in the barn he said i, I thought i'll hide in the barn until four o'clock when my father comes to pick me up and then I'll just tell him that you know it was a bad day I didn't say anything 
And he goes, I was hiding in the barn. Next minute, 10 minutes later, this farmer stand, uh, turns up with a shotgun. <laughs> and he goes, he was, said to me, like, who are you? Thinking he was a trespasser. And then um, he goes, what have you got in your bag? And he said, look, my father gave me this stuff to sell. You know, and, um, but um, uh, I didn't have the guts to go to the house and I'm just waiting for my father to pick me up. He goes, he goes, while he was pointing the gun at me, he said, open, open, open your case. He said, I opened it up and he saw the stuff and he said, oh, great. I'll take it all. <laughs> he goes, he took everything. <laughs> so he goes, um, when, I, when my dad picked me up, he said, how was it? And when I presented him the bag and that's empty and all the cash, he was like, oh, Shavash, you know, all right. <laughs> You're going to go again to the house next week. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so these, uh, these were the sort of... Uh, or pleasant and funny stories of uh, uh, another chap I uh, interviewed in the 90s and he actually knocked on this door of an elderly lady and who was very welcoming to see uh, sort of a, 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 an Indian and said I'll, I'll come inside and have a cup of tea and she got tea and cakes out for him and then she told him that um, when um, Gandhi, when Mahatma Gandhi was studying here at university, um, she was his girlfriend and she got all these photographs out <laughs> and showing them together. And um, he, obviously he asked for them and she said, no, I can't. She got these are my memories and they're very private and I wouldn't want them to, to, to get out to anyone to know because it's my, my personal life and, and it was between me um, uh, and, and Gandhi. So it just shows you <laughs> um, uh, hidden histories as well. Uh, we, I, think, I, I think you could really do a book full of stories of, uh, of friends because there was some, some, some you know, terrific stories um, and, and even peddlers I knew who um, who knew with them sing, um, you know, one such chap was um, um, his name was Ratan Singh, um, and he was a bit of a poet. So he um, he used to call himself um, Ratan Singh. I forgot what I'm saying, but he used to, he, he, uh, if we come back to this Azad. Sorry, so he used to call himself Ratan Singh Azad, and. This is in the, in the in the thirty uh, in the thirties and right up to uh, the, the the Second World War, and as you know, obviously when Udham Singh did the shooting, he gave his name as Ram Muhammad Singh Azad, and so this chap, you know, Ratan Singh goes back to his lodgings, and his landladies only um, called the police and said, "There's a guy who's living in my in one of my rooms, and on his on his suitcase it says R S Azad." Which was Ratan Singh Azad. And obviously they were linking it up. And uh, basically, guys, they, they sort of stormed my room and I got arrested. My friend got arrested and we spent the next sort of 24 hours in the nick under questioning um, about uh, the shooting of uh, Sir Michael O'Dwyer. And we had to convince them that uh, I wasn't, you know, that chap. And Azad is, uh, is, is there's no link. I do not know Udham um, uh, um, Singh and my name is Ratan Singh. So it was a, another another funny story which came out of it. That is that's incredible. And to be fair, though, I'm not I'm equally not surprised because um, cases of mistaken identity still occur. So yeah, so yeah, fair enough. Um, a couple of questions then, just kind of that um, are, are still remaining. So having studied kind of Sikh migration to Britain over the 20th century and and, and slightly prior. Like, what do you think the future of the community will look like? And do you think that we'll see kind of future waves of migration? Um, obviously, I guess, like, that's a very open-ended question because who knows what's going to happen, right? Um, but I guess, what, like, what do you see the future of the sea community in the, in the UK, I guess, then kind of looking like in the future? Well, it's, the sea community is a very successful community, very affluent community. Um, and it's done well, and I think compared to many of the other communities who have migrated, I think we've excelled, um, and we've um, reached in such high positions and places. Um, people like Tandesi, you know, MP and, and Preeti Gill, so uh, we've uh, not in politics, but um, you know, even in in television, um, we've got uh, Anita Rani, you know, and so we, you know, in, from from media, we've got Karinda Chadha, so we've got. A whole array of um, uh, Sikh Punjabi men and women who have sort of really peaked at sort of uh, sort of the highest positions uh, one can think of, and I think there's only one way. You know, we can only we can only just get better and 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 see more and more um, members of our Sikh community uh, following their, their their footsteps. 
Um, as in numbers, um, obviously um, numbers are growing as in all, all, all the communities, but I, I don't see a huge influx as in, you know, uh, a, a mass migration uh, in one hit. I, I can't see that unless something something happens in, in world politics or uh, uh, which changes that. So it's 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 it'll, it'll increase slowly. But what I can be assured or what not sure, but which I'm definitely I I, I can say that we're, we're, we're definitely succeed um, in the areas uh, that we need to, and, and we're showing signs of that anyway. No, definitely. Um, one last question that I had, and this is more just kind of because um, I like this is my own personal curiosity. Is there's two editions of your seats in Britain book. I just wanted to know what the difference is between them. One's obviously published in I think 2007, and the other one's published five years later. Um, what is the biggest difference, if any, or is it just kind of more uh, in relation to kind of the the images and the the photographs that are included? Yeah, so the, uh, the main reason why the, the the second version was done, because the first version basically sold out within months, um, it did really well. And, and the reason for that was because anybody who was featured or had a family member in there, they were ordering like, can we have 10, 10 copies of this? Because they, want order, because they wanted to give it as gifts to their family members and, and their friends. And I, I, I went to the publishers and... Um, and I said, look, the, the book sold out, and you know, can we do a second edition? And the sadly, the publisher felt that um, they had made their money on the book, and it's done really well. And, and they felt if we do if we do a, a, a second edition, a second uh, print of the book, it, it might not be as successful. So they were uh, they were wary of this. So then I took the rights back of the book from them, and I, I took it to another publisher and basically what we decided that we had to give something different to the audience so what we did we not only updated um, the first book uh, but we colorized a lot of the images which weren't colorized and at the same time after doing the first book we i i found a lot of people reaching out to me and giving their family stories to me and sending photographs in so it, it included that as well so it's like an update it's like a revised edition and also an enlarged edition as well. So during the kind of the first phase of uh, Sikh migration that you discuss in your book, you mentioned that it occurs between both of the world wars. Now, what, like, what is it about the First World War that activates or catalyzes Sikh migration to uh, England? I'm assuming it's obviously got a lot to do with the fact that India is part of the Commonwealth, and obviously there's a there's a united um effort during the first world war obviously as in during the second world war but um or is there more to it well the the first world war was the sort of the first time where we had uh, uh, Sikh soldiers um who were part of the british indian army come in large numbers obviously we had the the, the coronations and and the jubilees i mentioned where they came for processions but in the first world war the Sikhs actually came because of the the great war which was taking place in europe and the Indian hospitals were set up in Britain, mainly on the south coast, on the, on the Sussex um, coast. Um, there were a number of hospitals uh, set up in, in Brighton, uh, most famously at the Royal Pavilion, which was chosen because of its, of its Indian architecture. And they felt that the Indian soldiers would feel more at home in, in that environment. Um, we had the, the Dome Hospital, um, the York Place School, um, the, the Workhouse. So there were around five hospitals in Brighton on its own. And then there were hospitals in the New Forest. So we had uh, Brockenhurst, um, Ash, Ashurst and Lindhurst as well. And so these uh, hospitals were for specifically for the, the Indian soldiers who were being wounded on the, um, on, on, the um, on the front in, in France or the Western Front. And they were hospitalized and they were they were brought to England so they could rest and 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 uh, for, to con um, convalesce. And um, one of the stories, or one of the um, hist uh, historical um, stories I picked up, was uh, Princess Sophia the Leap Singh, Maharaja the Leap Singh's uh, third daughter, who was the the suffragette we all know about. Um, she actually came to Brighton in, in 1916, 1917, and she nursed many of the Indian soldiers. And you can just imagine how excited these wounded soldiers were, knowing that this was the, the granddaughter of Maharaja Ranjit Singh and, and uh, she was nursing them. 
and many of them wrote back to their families telling them that I met the granddaughter of Shere Punjab Ranjit Singh and uh, as a memento she gave many of them signed photographs of herself um, and also the small mirrors um, which I um, um, visualized in my book as well which were well they were actually shaving mirrors, but she we actually called it turban mirrors because the Sikhs could put them on a stand and do their, their stars. So she, she she gave many of the Sikh soldiers little mirrors, little mementos, uh, which they could use to to tie their turbans, um, uh, made, made, made of ivory. So um, so this was an interesting uh, fact, which connected sort of the Leap Singh's daughter, one of the first Sikh uh, migrant, with the current crop of Indian uh, soldiers, uh, Sikh soldiers, which were coming to Brighton. And obviously in Brighton, um, they had their, the first place for their saskar, which was done uh, just, just outside um, uh, of, of uh, Brighton, where now at the, it's called the Chaturi uh, in Brighton, where now every year they hold uh, a, a remembrance, a memorial event to mark all the, um, the, the Hindus and, and the Sikhs, uh, which, who were cremated uh, on, the, on this pyre, which was made especially for the Indian soldiers. Just another question that comes to mind is, so a lot of the time when researching uh, Sikh migration um, or early Sikh migration, just in general, um, a lot of the migration, for, not a lot, but some of the migration, for instance, to North America is in relation to kind of the Indian nationalist movement or almost kind of, at least it's an anti-British, there's an anti-British sentiment to a lot of it. Uh, the Qadr party, for argument's sake, probably being the easiest um, example to, to provide. Now, I'm, I'm making huge assumptions here, but I'm assuming Eng like England doesn't seem to play the same role as other uh, countries do in that context. So you don't, I I've, haven't I've quite come across any kind of national, like I've never heard of any kind of migrants coming to England in terms of kind of, I guess besides, besides Shahid Adam Singh, obviously shooting uh, the British general, which is, is 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 a very clear example, but in general, there's not space for a movement of the same kind of magnitude as the Gardner Party within England. Is that more so just because of the fact it is the heart of the British Raj, as in kind of it would kind of be foolish to start something like that right next to where the power is yielded, or so obviously the the Canadian. Uh migration was a much earlier migration um, and obviously there was a lot of earlier um, um, circumstances where the the party uh, took action uh, and obviously I think the Gadda rights obviously started in, in Canada as well and we had the, uh, we had the Komagato uh, instance as well so which uh, awoke a lot of Indian uh, nationalism up um, but yes there were um, circumstances which I found in my in, in my research I, I uh, met um, members um, or the, the descendants of some members who did um, take an, an action, uh, a very, we could say, a um, undercover operations which were going on here. Um, many of them did not want to be mentioned in the book because obviously for, for their own personal reasons and security issues, um, and they mentioned to me that um, their father's um, father was being uh, watched. Um, they, had, uh, they were under surveillance during that time. So there was that going on. And even people that knew Udham Singh at that time and, and the shooting, uh, and they were being watched for months and probably for the duration of the war until the independence of India, they were being watched uh, with cars parked outside their houses. And it was blatant surveillance. It wasn't hidden surveillance. It was like literally a car would be parked outside your house watching you. And then, you know, if you could go and meet people, you knew that you were being followed. And I... Uh, met families and 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 there are still some people or there's, there's a couple of people who are still around today who, who recall that but um, certainly when I was doing the book there were a few there was a, a chap I knew who was a, a good friend of Wudham Singh I just managed to interview him you know towards the end of his life and he actually arrived on the same ship as um, uh, Wudham Singh and um, he never spoke about his experiences and he was never allowed to he basically had a gagging order on him he was never allowed to speak to um, no media people, no no, no press, uh, so he had to keep it quiet. And even when I went to see him, he was very careful, and and I, and I had to really win him round to even speak to me. I had to go through a lot of family networks and people he knew, and someone, no, his daughter-in-law's 
uncle's cousin knew my mum and mum's friend, you know, that, and then we had to get a connection because I tried to reach out to him and he just wouldn't, wouldn't want to talk to me. Um, and when he did, it was a very yes, no, yes, no sort of interview. But I, I, I managed to get a, a, a transcript of an interview he did uh, with a relative after he died. And um, yeah, he, um, he, he knew uh, uh, quite a lot of what was going on at that time uh, in the, the, the fight for Indian independence. Uh, and there were some key players, and, and a lot of these players were involved in the uh, Communist Party, because there was a co Indian Communist Party here, um, the, also the IWA, which was the Indian Workers Association, uh, which was, um, which I think went on to have an office in Southwell afterwards. Uh, but the original IWA, I think, was set up in Coventry. And obviously, Udham Singh used to visit Coventry a lot, because there was a lot of early Sikhs in Coventry as well. And um, some members of the Castle Jatta British Arms as well, who were also involved in the Indian independence and had very strong links um, uh, with Udham Singh. Um, but as I said, because obviously being very core to the pr uh, problem, we were very close to the whole establishment. It had to be kept, you know, it, they had to play their cards close to their chest. Um, I actually wasn't going to ask any more questions, but the answer to the last question that you've just provided has made me now want to ask another question. Um, where does Udham Singh come into, like, why Coventry? Because there was the IWA, which was set up in Coventry, and um, there was, and Udham Singh obviously was a communist himself, and there was a communist element to the party. Um, I also believe the, I was told, um, obviously this is, we're going back 15 years, but the night or the day, the night before the shooting, um, he'd actually gone to the Midlands, he'd gone to Coventry, um, and I know he went to Birmingham because I know the person he met, and he told that person that next morning, listen to your wireless because something big is going to happen. So he told, he didn't tell him what was going to happen, but he said, just listen, just, just listen to the wireless tomorrow. Um, and he basically um, stayed there for a few hours. And one of the children who were there at the time um, even recalls having a little game of football with all them singing at that time. <laughs> this is the night before he went back. Um, and then, then obviously he went to uh, went to London um, to to shoot uh, Michael O'Dwyer. So yes, there was a strong um, uh, link. Um, another revolutionary who came to um, Coventry was Bhagat Singh's Chacha, Sardar Ajit Singh. So Ajit Singh was the the man behind you know the the Bhagri Samajata movement, which started with, with the farmers uh, in, in during the British Raj. And um, obviously he was a wanton man, he was exiled, he ran away, he was exiled. Um, he traveled and stayed in various countries all, uh, in Africa and Europe. And um, when India was to be granted independence, um, Ajit Singh knew now was a safe time to go back. And before that visit, before his visit back to uh, Punjab, he, he came to London, he went to Karthajata, the, the Sikhs in Coventry who were involved had the sort of the links with the revolutionaries invited him to Coventry. There's a photograph in my book of him visiting Coventry, uh, Sardar Ajit Singh, which is Bhagat Singh Shacha, visiting Coventry. Um, he visited, there's a photograph of him visiting the Shepherds Bush Gurdwara as well, um, and then heading back um, to India uh, on independence. And he actually died, I think, a week or two weeks after independence. So he spent his whole life, he spent his whole life in exile fighting for the cause and just as independence was granted, he died a, a couple of weeks later, uh, which is really sad. Just digging a little bit further into the into the commentary thing, like, are you aware of who some of the kind of early families were perhaps that came to, to commentary? And again, like, what was their... Uh, kind of what was the pull for their arrival? Well, I'm, I'm assuming, again, it's labour shortages, but or, or was there something more going on? No, there were obviously, you know, there were the foundries and, and, and the manufacturing of Coventry. So a lot of the, the labourers, which came, people who came to do labour work uh, was for that reason. There's a, there's a really good book actually um, called Coming to Coventry. I'm not too sure if you're aware of that book. Um, it was it was done at the same time as I did Sikhs in Britain. So we worked quite closely. I, I, I knew the researchers, um, who, who, who did the book, and um, it shows a real good photographic history of the the um, Asian community um, to Coventry, and um, and it gives the story of Ajit Singh in there as well. That's amazing. I did. Uh, 
this is why I love having these conversations because I get to learn so much in the process and equally I get to kind of share that with, with whoever kind of bothers to, to listen. Um, that's insane. I never knew of a lot of that, especially those connections to Coventry. So uh, yeah. thank you yeah. for enlightening me. And uh, another story I would like to I could, could tell you is the yeah. these, um, you, you might know of the Punjab restaurant in Covent Garden, you know, which has been in the same family for I think four or five generations now. Now they um, established were established around the the late uh, 1930s, and the founder Guru Bachchan Singh was a, a very good friend of Udham Singh, and Udham Singh would, um, would 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 come to his restaurant and and they would uh, go out. And Udham Singh actually took him to his car once, and he did car and uh, he lifted up the uh, in, it sort of inside the the, the, the uh, driver's seat. He pulled apart the the, the 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 undercoming of the of the of the roof of the car, pulled it off, and he showed Gurbachan Singh the gun which he was going to shoot <laughs> uh, O'Dwyer with uh, at Caxton Hall, um, and he, he obviously he, he recalled seeing that gun, which a memory which stuck um, uh, with with Gurbachan Singh, um, and uh, another chap obviously on the on the subject of Gurbachan Singh. I mean, as I said, there's a, quite a few stories which uh, all of them sing which I, which I, which I came upon. But uh, another one was with a, a chap, as I said, who came on the same ship as him, and um, they would basically, you know, go out and about and were good drinking pals, etc. And obviously, the war was on, and there were curfews, so you 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 wasn't allowed to to drive at night. And these two had actually decided to head on this evening. Uh, to the city of Bath for a night out, and um, obviously they're driving on the on the old uh, the A roads, and obviously the lights were on, which were obviously because the curfews because of, there were bombings going on. You know, you shouldn't have had the, the car out anyway. They were stopped by a police car, and this chap said to me that Udham Singh turns around and said to him, "What do you think?" Oh, in Punjabi, he said to him, he goes, "Marie Gorino." And this guy, this guy freaked out. He thought, you know, we've just come to this country. You know, we can't, I can't be doing. I'll come here to work, and I can't, can't be doing this. You know, and um, and he said, look, I'm only joking. I was in with the mazaki kitas, you know. And obviously, they obviously got in trouble by the police officer for being out. And he told him not to to dim the lights and get to the nearest destination and, and stay the night there. And you shouldn't be driving around. But that was the sort of the ideology of Wardham Singh and the sort of the, sort of the sort of the jokes he he, he was uh, cracking at that time. And nobody knew what his true intention was. And actually, he actually said to him, that's, that's, that's the word he remembered. He goes, he goes, Udham Singh said to me, I like the, the language that's used as well. Just kind of digging into that, was a lot of the, um, so if I can say Udham Singh, was a lot of the rhetoric and the kind of, because obviously you've mentioned he's part of the IWA, um, there's a communist kind of ideology to things. Is a lot of the kind of movement influenced at this point by communism and its, its kind of appeal in terms of providing an alternative to kind of an exploitative British Raj that's been extremely kind of capitalist in terms of it has literally just kind of destroyed whole economies within India, um, in all, essentially because of a monopoly. Or is there like, or, or what else is kind of influencing this kind of um, like? Is it also just because of circumstance, like migrants coming to this country? Obviously, a lot of them are workers, filling in labor shortages, um, and therefore, obviously, the IWA makes sense because they obviously need to unionize to try and um, strengthen their voice. Like, like what? What's kind of going on at this point? Well, obviously, the IWA was set up as a body to help Indians which were were coming to this country, as in helping them fill their forms and their the applications, their their job interviews. But obviously, at the same time, this the early part of the IWA had this um, nationalist um, element to it, where they were actually um, gathering and having their discussions and talks about um, making India independent. And obviously, a lot, a lot of the chaps that were involved were communist, and there could be many reasons from this. I don't know. This could be from from Burma, from China, from, um, 
This got also influenced by people like Subhash Chandra Bose, um, you know, who was um, uh, who, who had a, a, a communist backing, and obviously there was Russia at that time, who was a big player in what was happening in India, and obviously Burma and China were the other uh, sort of neighbouring countries as well. So there was a big influence of, of communism uh, amongst the uh, very early uh, activists um, in, in the Indian National Party. But the the, the reason why I, I, I couldn't answer that. Yeah. No, fair enough. I, I appreciate that. That that is. Um... That's equally a valid response to that. So no, no, yeah. thank you. Um, again, I think I've, we've gone through all of the questions that I wanted to cover. Um, I just want to obviously just double check. There's nothing else you want to include. Yeah, I think we covered. You know, uh, basically we covered the bulk. whole. Yeah, bulk of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. No. Time flies. I didn't realize it's been over an hour. So. No, no, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. You, you talk for like because once you get involved it, it definitely flows all right well in that case i obviously have to say thank you for um taking the time out to to have this conversation today and obviously for for even producing the book because obviously it's off the back of that that we're um having this conversation um i think i would definitely recommend those who have listened to this podcast if you want to find out more basically buy the seeds in britain book um this isn't to plug anything this is just out of genuine kind of um if you're genuinely interested um peter Bantz has given a, a little kind of discussion of it pre just earlier on in this, this this podcast um but no yeah i can i can just say thank you for having this conversation um and hopefully people or, or everyone listening has learned something from it because i've definitely learned a lot i never knew there was such a connection with coventry in the first place so uh yeah, that's that's very enlightening. Oh, well, thank you and thank you for giving me the the platform to give give you parts of my research and and, and the stories which um, which I encountered during the research. And obviously, equally, if there's stories out there, we we, we would love to hear them. I mean, people can contact um, your podcast and obviously the, the rambling thing. Uh, I'm just saying to uh, send in stories. Um, we'd love to hear stories. You know, definitely factual historical accounts of your family stories and, and photographs which could be included in, in, in future publications. So uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Yeah. No, no, not a problem. Um, no, awesome. Yeah, I can only say thanks for the, the help and the support you, you, you've provided. So no, thanks for that. Okay, thanks, Emma. Awesome, not a problem. Take care. All right, cheers.